Welcome to Inc.'s The Founders Project with Alexa Von Tobel. I'm Alexa, the founder of LearnBest, author of New York Times bestselling book, Financially Fearless, and second book, Financially Forward. I'm also the founder and managing partner of Inspired Capital, a venture firm focused on the entrepreneurs of the future. Each week, we sit down with a top founder to share their story of guts, inspiration, and drive. Hi, everybody. I'm your host, Alexa Von Tobel, and I'm excited for you to meet Greg Williams, co-founder and CEO of Acquisure, a financial services company that offers multiple products and solutions to small to middle market companies. Greg started Acquisure back in 2005. Since 2013, the company has seen a compounded annual growth rate of 58%, driven over $4.4 billion in revenue, and has averaged more than 100 M&A transactions per year. Already the sixth largest insurance broker in the world, the largest independent real estate services company in America, Acrosure is now a global fintech company with a broad product and service offering. Greg has extended Acrosure's success into social impact. In 2020, Acrosure pledged $15 million to establish a center for innovation in children's health in Grand Rapids, home to Acrosure's global headquarters. And more recently, Greg spearheaded the creation of Evolution Advisors, along with NFL quarterback Russell Wilson, his wife, Grammy award-winning Ciara, and NBA all-star Russell Westbrook. This joint venture is focused on the insurance and financial services needs of minorities and diverse communities. Prior to Aperture, Greg was vice president of Michigan National Corporation, a $19 billion bank holding company. With that, for all that he's accomplished, let's welcome Greg. Hi, Greg. So excited to have you here today. You have built such an incredibly interesting business these last almost 20 years. Let's go back to the beginning. First thing first, what is Aperture in your own words? Acrisure is a fintech company with a, an ever-expanding product and service offering that's underpinned by a technology, an AI technology platform. In its simplest form, that's what we are and what we're building and what we're growing. Can we go to the moment in 2005 when you had an aha moment to start the business? Go back to why'd you start it? What was the aha moment that said, let's start this business? And then let's think a little bit through how those early years went. Tell us. In 2005, when I was introduced to the opportunity building an insurance broker's business, my first reaction is the world doesn't need another insurance broker. That was my first reaction. And as I dug into it, it had some financial aspects that were very compelling in terms of high recurring revenue and nice profit margins, et cetera. What it came to is that, you know, the world might not need another insurance broker, but the industry does. When I say that, the the reason I say that is the M&A model that the industry used was really chaotic and disruptive to the acquiring companies. And so I looked at this and said, look, I love the financial fundamentals of the industry. There's a better way to do M&A to where entrepreneurs can monetize the value that they've created, but not have a displacement or a uh, bad experience with their employees or their clients, either one. So we basically just introduced a different M&A model and a different operating model post-transaction that we knew the marketplace or was confident the marketplace would react to. And really part of that analysis was I did a deep dive on 20 deals, 20 transactions that were acquired by other companies. I won't name the names, but if you went across and said the top 10 to 12 insurance brokers in the, in the country, you know, we'd hit most of those names and 12 of those 20 companies financially regressed a year after the transaction. So I'm looking, if I'm going to invest my own capital, which in the early days I did, I really don't want to invest in something that's got a 60% regression in terms of revenue and and growth. And so it really was, is there something wrong with the industry? Is there something wrong with the business? Or is there something wrong with the M&A model? And it was the latter. 
that, uh, that we focused on in order to kind of offer a differentiated opportunity to people. So those were the aha moments that helped us uh, get started on the right foot and differentiate ourselves. In less than two decades, you've become one of the largest insurance brokers in the world. Was that type of acceleration part of your game plan out of the gate? And if not, what do you attribute all of the momentum to? Again, in 18 years, you've built a business that took other companies centuries to build. We've actually done most of that in the last 10 years. $38 million of revenue 10 years ago. It's $4.3 billion now 10 years later. So was the goal to scale? Yes. Uh, did I think 10 years ago it was going to be four-plus billion dollars of revenue? I'd be lying if I said, yes, I knew it was going to be that. Uh, it, you, know, you hoped it was going to you know, succeed to the level that it has, but you didn't know it. 2016, I did know it, and we did a management buyout. Essentially, if we're going to create value, let's create value for you know, what I call the right people, those that uh, worked in the business every day. But really, if you said what allowed it to happen, it was the alignment of interest with a bunch of entrepreneurs that in terms of we were offering a very high value proposition to them, we aligned our interest, aligned with leaders. We focused on continuity of leadership and made sure that they didn't go anywhere once we acquired the companies. What are your best practices that you've learned in identifying a good M&A opportunity? What makes things work post-acquisition to maximize value? Yeah, so first and foremost, we focused on companies that have uh, criteria that we just are unwavering about, uh, you know, not deviating from at all. So historical growth or historical track record of organic growth, historical track record of profitability. I mentioned continuity of leadership is a key thing that we focused on and and all those things. But as you look at the things that we've been able to do is, I will tell you, in large portion, tied to the fact that everyone in the company, all these acquisitions, these 100 acquisitions you've done, literally 100% of them, those transactions have been completed with a seller retaining some portion of the purchase consideration in our equity. And so it kind of self-selects who's interested in continuing to grow the business as opposed to who's just looking to cash out and move on. And so as a result of that, we found ourselves with a company of entrepreneurs and all the unique elements that an entrepreneur has to offer. I mean, attracted like-minded people. And, uh, and then ultimately, as you think about acquiring those many companies and working post-transaction, we've got this very strong partnership mentality as a result of aligning our interests the way that we have. We have a lot of buy-in because as long as it makes sense and they can see that it makes sense strategically, they're in. You know, back in 2019, you made some really important AI decisions and you, in 2020, made a $400 million transaction to purchase an AI pioneer called Tolco that you then deployed across all of the businesses. Can we talk a little bit about what helped you decide to make that decision? Because you kind of leapfrogged. What helped you get to that conclusion? Well, in 2019, uh, we had spent a lot of time from 2017 to 2019 kind of getting ourselves uh, organized from a data analytics perspective. And so while we had great data and great information, great analytics, it was so obvious that we hadn't gone far enough in terms of actually using the information to help us predict what opportunities could look like, what uh, was out there for and available for us to, to pursue in terms of opportunities. And so I started in 2019, started looking for AI experts and whether it was individuals that uh, had had some expertise and capability in terms of writing code to more companies that had some technology, AI capabilities. And I left all of those meetings, all of them, asking myself one question. Okay, they can probably write code. 
and they can probably do some interesting things to help us, but what value have they created on their own? And in all of those cases, until I met uh, Thomas Toll and the Toko people, the answer was, you know what, they haven't really created much value at all. And so when I met Thomas, it literally was, you know, I was looking for him when he was looking for me, we just didn't know it. And I sat down and said, look, I want to use artificial intelligence and robotic processing and all of these tools and weapons, if you will, to transform the company and, and help us do things that we just have never done before. So the thesis was, could we source and identify new opportunities, new business opportunities, all digitally with no humans involved? And then on an insurance basis, again, this was life insurance and voluntary benefits. So think of that, uh, the cancer policy as an example. Could we source, identify, and close business with no humans involved? That was the thesis or the test. So literally, first meeting, handshake, formed a joint venture, took six, seven months building the technology platform using the capital that we invested. Thomas already had the team in place. We started selling product, identifying and sourcing opportunities and selling product. And what we learned as I'm watching this thing grow 10% plus per week, I reached out to Thomas and said, look, Thomas, this thing is going to get big. I need to deploy it now across all of AcroSure, all of our products and services, not just life insurance and voluntary benefits. In order to do this effectively, I need to buy out your 50% interest. And so we proved the case with one caveat. Most often you needed a person involved in this financial decision. And so to me, it was so obvious that the winning combination was the best of humans and the best of technology. As you said, Greg, you grew revenue from 38 million about a decade ago to $4.4 billion. Can you just talk about what challenges happen to a business? Because that is just such incredible growth. What was hard about that? So it's fantastic, but it definitely has its challenges. And so when you think about the business that's scaling that fast, but from an operational standpoint, the talent, we definitely outgrew talent as we were growing and scaling the way that, uh, that we did. And so there's been a need to constantly kind of stay ahead of what challenges the company has. And so finding talent that uh, matches our scale, knowing that we're growing 58% on a compounded basis a year, you can't have the talent and the scale match today. You've got to be thinking in three and four and five years from now as it relates to what is the business going to become. So I used to say and continue to say, look, don't think of the business for what it is today. There's a tidal wave coming. It's called 100 acquisitions a year and all the things that that represents in terms of integration and consolidation challenges. But the, I think that's the biggest one is just to kind of staying ahead of it as it relates to the, the talent inside the business and really anticipating what the needs and the challenges are going to be given that kind of growth. Greg, I want to ask, so right now, and this is a fun fact, one in every 20 businesses in America is an AcroSure client. That's pretty crazy. And I'd love just to get a sense of what are the biggest trends you're keeping an eye on as it comes to those customer needs? What are the trends that you've been paying attention to for those companies? One of the things that we do, we're big on surveying and as a way to understand, yeah, so we're not assuming anything, we're understanding what the marketplace is thinking. So a lot of those surveys in some cases have to do with focused on our clients. Most, however, are not. And so we take people and businesses that look like our clients they're not our clients, but they look like our clients. And then we survey them. And so one of the things that uh, we did a couple of years ago is we surveyed and asked questions like, well, do you see yourself buying insurance through a digital platform at some point in time in the future? 
left it open-ended, 77%. Now, these are small to middle market businesses. This isn't the large uh, you know, Fortune 500 companies. 77% of them responded, yes, we do see ourselves buying insurance through a digital platform at some point in time in the future. Now, whether I believe they're actually going to do that or not, frankly, doesn't matter. The fact is that we've got a, a big percentage of small to middle market business owners and decision makers or, or influencers telling us what they think their experience is going to be. And so I sit here today and say, look, we're largely historically an industry that has transacted person to person, relationship to relationship. And yet we've got a universe of clients or people that look like our clients telling us that's really not the way they think they're going to transact going forward. So we need to have a significant digital capability to meet them where they want to be met. And so I would say in terms of a trend, they're not prepared to uh, kind of face off and transact the way our clients want to. And so hence back to 2019 and 2020, making those investments in technology and a digital capability that uh, allowed us to have insights. You know, we have 141 billion data elements that we've got about uh, business and people. And so we have tremendous insight into who they are, what they're doing, and what they want. And part of what they want is that digital interaction or a digital capability. And so, hence, we've invested in that to to meet them where they want to be met. I want your playbook on talent. And as somebody who's built a business really quickly, you've acquired a lot, what would you say are the things that matter to you on talent decisions? Yeah, you know what? Uh, Cultural fit is huge. I mean, I can't underscore it enough. I mean, we have uh, 10 isms, the acrosurisms in terms of things, the cultural expectations that we have, that every time we hire someone, it doesn't matter if it's an accounting person or an account executive or a senior level executive, you know, we talk about the cultural expectations as outlined in these isms. And so cultural fit is huge. There's kind of a hard wiring is what we found. If a fast paced a kind of high intensity environment is not something that you're moved by and enjoy, even inspired by, then it's probably not a good place to work. And so what we found is there's a hard wiring of people that either have it or they don't. So the cultural fit has been huge as it relates to people and attracting talent, the right talent that allows them to be successful and obviously helps us be the same. Last question, if you think about your industry and you have any predictions, if you fast forward five or 10 years, what's obvious to you, Greg, that's coming next, especially since you said you really do live three to four years out? Uh, If you think five years out, it's almost kind of hard if you look at what's going on with ChatGPT and all the advancements, fact and stats that uh, I'm sure are overused at this point in time, but said, you know, how long did it take to get 100 million worldwide users, the television, it was 75 years. Of the telephone, it was 32 years. Of the mobile phone, it was 16 years. Chat GPT, 60 days. And so when you look at the adoption of technology, it's obvious to me that the world's going to you know, more and more go in that direction. So not to you know, lean into overused terms, but AI, large language models, what you can do in a bespoke proprietary way in terms of large language models to me is what's most interesting. If you said five years, you can kind of see what is going to be tools and resources. I mean, I'm big into what we can do with chatbot technology that, again, is 
bespoke and proprietary to our business, not necessarily you know, just open resource to everybody. I do think the winning formula is the best of humans and the best of machines. I do believe that, especially in the financial services. Now, if you're talking about maybe a manufacturing industry, maybe it's not the case, but in the financial services sector, there's still, I think, a very strong need for both. But if you said, what's going on in the world 10 years from now, I'm not sure I could even forecast what it is. So we're just going to lean in heavily, continue to lean in heavily and adopt where we can for some of those advancements ourselves, because we do have, I think, an advantage given how far along we are in this journey. You know, we're three plus years into uh, AI development and adoption. I want to transition a little bit to you. You grew up in Michigan. If we go back, I always like to ask, was there something that your parents did that in the rearview mirror has prepared you to be a better entrepreneur? My least favorite subject is talking about myself, but we'll, but we'll do that for a minute. Uh, my, uh, <laughs> my father died of a heart attack when he was 39 years old. I was 14. My mom did uh, probably the greatest thing that a parent could do. She told me the truth. You know, about a week after my dad died, she sat down and said, Greg, have modest means. You know, we're not a wealthy family. If you want something in life, and I don't mean food and shelter, that's taken care of, but if you want something in life, it's going to be up to you to get it and do it. She's not a dramatic person in any way, shape, or form, but there was some, there was a dramatic kind of moment until, you know, I don't know, several days or a week or so later, it hit me that, okay, I got it. If I want something in life, I'm going to have to do it. I've got no help or I can't expect any help. And I'm not saying I didn't have a support system. I absolutely did. My family's been great. My mom was terrific and brothers and sisters were great and so forth. But at the end of the day, I think that probably shaped me from an attitude, forced me to grow up and forced me to recognize some things that maybe I wouldn't have until later in life. But that definitely shaped and formed my approach to opportunities is that, look, it isn't going to get handed to you. You got to go get it. And uh, with what you do with that opportunity is completely up to you. That's still to this day at 62 years old. I can tell you it uh, it's, it's, it's continues to shape kind of uh, how I think about things. I also lost my dad at 14. So I feel like the inherent message of you got to go for the things that you want. It sounds like maybe we both got that. Yeah. What do you think are like the absolutely critical skill sets of a founder entrepreneur? especially now that you built a company that's worth tens of billions of dollars and you've been extremely successful. If you had to like pay it forward to everyone that's listening about entrepreneurship, what would you say are the characteristics that you must have? Well, you better have a very strong sense about where you're going. It's not where you're at. It's where you're going. As I like to say to people, if you're a founder or CEO, you better think three years ahead and be thinking three years ahead because if nothing else, if you're not, you have to ask yourself, who is? Those things are kind of embedded in me in terms of uh, it's a constant reminder to myself that you've got to stay disciplined and getting caught up in the day-to-day is easy. In a second, you can be immersed in a problem that the business is facing. If you're, again, thinking about where the puck is going and getting to where you know the company needs to be, you've got to be defining what that is, what that means, and then find ways to bring that three-year future back into the day-to-day. My exec team and the folks that, uh, that I work with, look, I know it's going to feel unfair because you're immersed in day-to-day. I'm going to show up and start talking about what we've got to do in terms of what we got to look like in three years. So I'm going to bring the future into your day-to-day. That might feel unfair, 
but that is what uh, we're going to do. And so, because I spend an inordinate amount of time doing that and force myself to have some quiet time to do it. And you have to be disciplined about it because otherwise, again, you can get immersed in the day-to-day very easily. You have this quote, you said, highly successful people think differently than most. Highly successful people think abundantly. Yeah. What do you mean by that? It's interesting. I don't know why I did it. Maybe go back to the uh, the message my mom delivered. But you know, in my 20s, I spent time identifying people that were inordinately successful and not you know, modestly successful, but really, truly successful at a level maybe you didn't think that you could obtain yourself. And so uh, just as a habit would go spend time with them because, hey, I found highly successful people were actually willing to spend time talking about what they did and how they did it and so forth. And so I've learned over time, and it is something I learned, that, that highly successful people do think differently. And one of the things I take away is they're always thinking about next. And so I recently, two weeks ago, an unbelievable experience that I had a lunch with a dozen people. Nine of the 12 people were multi-billionaires. I mean, some of the most successful people on the planet. If I rattle off names, you'd know many of them, if not all of them. And I left, it was a two-hour lunch. I left that lunch and I always sit back and say, okay, what did I learn? I left that lunch and, and the thing I took away is that here these people are so successful and not a single conversation or moment was spent on what's going on today. They were all focused The oldest one in the room was 90 years old, and even the 90-year-old was focused on things that they're doing, things that they're pursuing, what's next. And and I just find it fascinating that you've got that level of success, that level of wealth, and yet you're not thinking about today, you're not thinking about past success. This is all about the challenges of the future and positioning businesses and assets and things that they have influence over going forward. And so it's the thing that fascinates me. It's something I just found in abundant thinking. And the status quo isn't part of the, the daily thought. It's more of what's next. You've once said that the life of an entrepreneur is not for the faint of heart, which I deeply agree with, by the way. How have you most grown to manage stress? How have you managed the stress? Well, as much as entrepreneurs uh, like to think that they you know, defy the laws of medicine and physics and everything else, <laughs> defy gravity and anything else you want to use as an example, we don't. So I, I really do focus on trying to get seven to seven and a half hours of sleep every single night, exercise regularly. When I don't do either one of those two things, I do feel differently and, uh, and find that without necessarily you know, consciously recognizing it, stress sneaks in in ways of impacting me from a health perspective. So that's number one. I'm very conscientious about the, those things that I think are sensible. And certainly if you want a, a long-term sustainable level of activity and, and productivity, I think those things are important. But beyond that, again, I talk about hardwiring in terms of what we look for in people. I might be describing myself in a way that's unflattering, but you know, I don't hunt, I don't fish, I don't golf. I have very few hobbies. I don't vacation well. Like to me, vacations work. Work is not work. It's fun. And so I truly, my hobbies, my passion, the things that get a a sense of fulfillment, it really is the professional success and achievement are the things that, that I most enjoy. So this is all fun. What we're doing today is not work. This is fun. It's so fun. Yeah, Yeah, it's so fun. And so anyway, so I just find myself that maybe it's, I just got lucky to be wired a certain way, but those are the things that I think help manage stress is it really is not work, it's fun. 
Greg, I'm just giggling because like I I think you and I can be related. I am wired the exact same way. Yeah. And I always joke I don't have hobbies. I love my job. Yep. Period. Yep. I'm gonna move to the quick fire round and just tell me the first thing that comes to mind, which is what gets you out of bed every day? Opportunities. When you are interviewing somebody, what is a question you like to ask to better understand them? I like to ask what they're thinking about as it relates to uh, the future. And uh, and are they futuristic or caught in the here and now? I like that a lot, Greg, and that obviously foots to how you think. If you think about Acresure, what would you say was one of the biggest pinch me moments where you came home from work and just said, wow, I really can't believe we achieved that? There was a pinch me moment that you wanted to make sure that it only lasts a moment. But you know, when we did the naming rights deal with the Steelers, and we didn't do it because I was a childhood fan of the Steelers, even though I was. We did it because it made sense from a business standpoint. I just happened to be a childhood fan of the Steelers. But having our name on an NFL stadium is uh, prestigious and iconic as uh, the NFL is, and as prestigious and iconic a brand as the Steelers are, that was a, a bit of a pinch me moment that, uh, okay, I got to get over it quickly, but that, that's what that represented probably more than anything else. That's pretty cool. I mean, especially for a business that you founded, your name up there, that's awesome. And I also love that you're like, and I gave myself one moment and then I moved on. If you think about a book that's had a massive impact on your life, and it can be a book of any kind, it doesn't need to be a business book. What was it? it uh, easy. The Outsiders by William Thorndike. Favorite book of all time. Find myself uh, referring to it all the time. I'm going to pick it up today. The Outsiders. Yep. If you think about a quote or a mantra that you kind of hold as true and deep to you, what would it be? Uh, John Templeton's quote that's actually in that book I just referenced is, uh, it's impossible to produce superior performance unless you do something different. I like it. Simply said, or in my words, if you do the same thing as everybody else, you're going to get the same results. That's right. Something that I try to live by, and it's easy to live by because I believe it to my core. Tell me one thing you hold as sacred in business. I would say two things, vision and culture. If you don't define those things yourself, they will get defined. It'll be defined by people who don't have the same uh, expectations, the same goals and objectives, maybe the same stewardship in terms of commitment to reward investors and people who've entrusted you with their money. So to me, vision and culture are the things that keep everybody focused. It's your North Star. And I keep coming back to that. If you don't define those things, somebody else will. I love it. Last question. If there's one category of innovation, and it can't be AI, that you're excited about, that you're looking towards in the future, what is it? Well, it's technology related. And I'll say the uh, where chatbot capabilities and technologies is going, I love the idea of having highly sophisticated alter egos. And we can replicate the best of our best and not to replace them, but to expand their influence that's something I'm hugely excited about. I love that. First of all, Greg, this has been an absolute delight. Thank you for joining us today. Everybody out there, if you want to learn more, check out Acrisure.com. If you have any insurance needs, please check out Acrisure.com. And you can join us next week for Inc. The Founders Project with Alexa Von Tobel. Greg, we are rooting for you. I feel like I have just learned such an incredible amount of abundance and about how you think. So thanks for being so generous with your time. We're all rooting for you. Thank you so much. Thanks, Alexa. Appreciate it. Sincerely.